Jodcast, virtual before virtual was a thing, with George Bendo, Samuel Lesk, Haratina Mugoshanu, Ian Morrison, Fiona Porter, Hongming Tang, and Michael Wright. The Jodcast, September 2020 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George and joining me today is Mike. Hi. In the show today... Mike interviews Andrew Chakenko about stellar astrophysics and big data. And Ian Morrison, Heratina Mogoshanu, and Samuel Lesk take a look at what's happening in the September night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Fiona Porter with this month's news. In the news this month, intermediate mass mergers, telescope troubles, and a sighting of a much younger solar system. First up. LIGO and Virgo have spotted the gravitational waves of an unusual black hole merger. Since gravitational waves were first detected in 2015, a variety of astrophysical mergers have been seen between black holes and neutron stars. The most recent detection is unusual in the mass of the black holes involved. The pair were around 66 and 85 times the mass of the Sun, merging to form a black hole of around 142 solar masses. This isn't the most massive black hole ever detected by a long shot. Supermassive black holes are millions or billions times of the mass of the Sun. However, it's the largest black hole detected by gravitational waves so far, and is the first example of an intermediate mass black hole that LIGO and Virgo have spotted. Intermediate mass black holes exist in the range between stellar black holes, which are formed by a single star collapsing, and the supermassive black holes found at the centre of galaxies. At the moment, how they come to exist isn't very well understood, but one theory was indeed that they could be formed by stellar black holes merging. Very few intermediate mass black hole candidates have been found, so this gravitational wave detection is significant, and will hopefully help us better understand how they come into existence. Next, some less good news. The Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico is no longer able to operate as a result of recent damage. A steel cable that was used to support part of the telescope's structure snapped, breaking an antenna and tearing a 30-metre hole in the telescope's 302-metre dish. This is not the first time in recent years it suffered damage. In 2017, winds from Hurricane Maria resulted in minor damage to the dish. But this time, the damage is much more significant. For now, the telescope has been shut down for safety and is being examined to determine how much repairs would likely cost and investigate why this unexpected cable failure occurred. Arecibo has been operating since 1963, and until 2016 it was the largest single-dish radio telescope in existence. While for now there's no timeline for its repair, with any luck, we'll see it up and running again before too long. Finally, The Very Large Telescope in Chile has produced the first image of a pair of exoplanets around a sun-like star. The star seen is very young, only about 17 million years old, but is otherwise very similar to the sun with a comparable mass. The planets, however, are quite different from those in our own solar system. The inner planet weighs in at around 14 times the mass of Jupiter, orbiting at 160 AU from its parent star, while the outer one is around 6 Jupiter masses and orbits at 320 AU. For comparison, 1 AU is the distance between the Earth and the Sun, and Pluto orbits at an average of 40 AU. These planets were made visible thanks to the sphere instrument at the VLT, which is able to block the light of the host star using something called a coronagraph, making it possible to spot the far fainter planets. 
This method is limited to young planets, which are hot and bright in the infrared. A solar system like ours is too cool and wouldn't be visible. Very few exoplanets have been directly imaged like this. The first one, also by the Very Large Telescope, was in 2004, and there are still less than 50 images total. Only two other systems with multiple planets have been imaged, and neither has a sun-like star, so this makes for a very interesting look at something like a much younger version of our solar system. Thanks for that, Fiona. Now, Michael Wright interviews Andrew Chachenko about stellar astrophysics and big data. Hello, welcome. This week we have Andrew Chachenko from KU Leuven. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, my pleasure. Would you like to introduce yourself briefly? Yes, so I'm uh, Andrew, as you just said, from the University of Leuven. I am a stellar astrophysicist, completed his PhD in 2010. I'm currently a senior researcher at the university, focusing on plot uh, or space mission work and Okay, I guess that the first thing to start with is what is the Plato mission and why is it interesting for your work in particular? Yeah, so the PLATA mission is the uh, European Space uh, Agency mission that is going to be launched in uh, 2026, uh, in the fall. And the mission uh, focuses on studying uh, exoplanets, detecting them, and characterizing in particular in the, in the terrestrial world. Okay, so in the super Earth and Earth regime around sunlight. So for us, it's particular astrophysicists. It's particularly interesting because uh, these type of space missions they deliver uh, uninterrupted um, uh, data sets of unprecedented quality that we can also use for stellar astrophysics. And in particular, uh, using the tool of astroseismology, yeah, studying the quakes of the stars to probe the inner structure and inner workings of stars and how they evolve. Okay, then. Firstly, I think it would be very useful. Could you give us a brief sort of introduction to what astroseismology is then? Yeah, so as I mentioned, so astroseismology it uh, uses the fact that uh, stars they experience periodic quakes. So uh, they have seismic signal that we can interpret in terms of the brightness variability on the star, and therefore, uh, so this is typically. Uh, low amplitude uh, is typically a phenomena, yeah? and therefore you need uh, high quality observations that are not perturbed by the daylight cycle on the Earth, by the Earth atmosphere, and so on and so forth. And uh, we interpret those, essentially, those brightness variations are recorded as kind of oscillogram, and we use those oscillograms to uh, probe the uh, deep layers inside the star. Because those oscillations, they come from particular layer inside the star, and they carry on they carry on the information on the physical conditions of the layer they propagate through. And because they come from a particular layer, then I suppose you can find out about that, about the internals of the sun. Yes. Well. So in, in the sun in particular, we have pulsations uh, that are driven in the outer zone of the sun yeah, by a turbulent convection. And those stars, so they propagate back and forth inside the star. And uh, with that, we can actually probe uh, pretty much 70 or 80% of the radius of the star from the surface. But not pretty much the near core regions, but quite deep down to 70%. And now, 
this emission and test, which you also mentioned, are giving you good data for this. So how are you going about going from this new data to getting it into a form that you can use? Because I know one of the big problems with these new missions is the sheer amount of data. Yes. So we, uh, before test, we had the uh, Kepler mission, which was the NASA mission, uh, also focusing on exoplanets, uh, detection and characterization of exoplanets. And the mission was carrying uh, the particular field in the sky for four years. Uh, and uh, therefore, we got four years of uninterrupted data. And that was really a new experience for us. And that's uh, the mission we really learned from, uh, both on how to handle the amount of the data we get and how to interpret the data data in terms of uh, our astrophysics. So now with tests, we are getting orders of magnitude more data, obviously, and uh, the only way around for us is to use the artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. Uh, in particular, so we use that uh, to process our data, in fact, to go from the raw images that the, the, that the telescope gives us to uh, uh, light curves, or, uh, yeah, so which are, as I said, uh, can be called oscillograms yeah, in a certain way. Uh, but then, of course, in order to uh, be able to, to do astrophysics on large sample of stars and large sample of stars uniformly distributed across the sky is what that is really giving us. We want to do the sample studies, statistically uh, significant stellar samples. So we want to classify the stars we observe according to the type of variability we see in the light curves. Yeah, so to that end, we would use machine learning to do automated classification, and that uh, goes to the researchers for interpretation and learning about physics, interior physics. Okay, so that classification then, you're aiming star to get stars into different groups that are useful to you. What particular classes of star are you looking for? How are you splitting these? Yeah, so how we're splitting those, we have to uh, parameterize our light curves and our stillograms, and we do it both in time domain and, and Fourier space. So basically, uh, those thousands of data points get uh, represented by uh, a, a few features, as we call them, for classification. Yeah, sometimes 10, 20 features. And based on, uh, on the similarity of those features, we do our classification. And uh, in our particular case, it's a two-stage classification, where in the, the uh, first stage, uh, we do classification based on the light curves themselves, without using any external information. In this particular case, it's, it's a broad classification, and in case of pulsating stars, it could be, for example, pressure mode pulsators as one class, uh, gravity mode pulsators as, a, as a yet another class, and uh, binary stars, is yet another class, so we do this kind of growth classification. But for example, uh, if we take a class of pressure mode pulsators, mode pulsators, yeah, there are both intermediate and more massive stars in there. And to distinguish between those light curves themselves are not sufficient. You have to use color information because uh, beta CFI, more massive uh, mode pulsators, they are typically hotter. Uh, than A-type pressure mode pulsators. Yeah? 
So, and since we want to learn about interior physics of stars as a function of stellar mass, we also want to separate those two groups, groups subgroups within a broader class. And that is all, and it turns out that it's only possible to do with color or temperature information of the star. So, to that end, we have the second stage classification where we start to rely on external information like color, temperature, so Gaia parallax, things like that. Okay, and at what point in this are you at now? Have you got a fair amount of data on classified stars? Uh, yeah, so yes, by now, uh, so it's, uh, it, it's, it observes uh, the sky yeah, in so-called sectors, yeah? so that's the particular part of the sky at which uh, the mission starts for 27.4 days, and then it moves on. So it, it covers the entire uh, hemisphere in, in certain sectors, and our estimate, uh, when we take full-frame images and we extract the light curves of magnitudes brighter than that's magnitude 15, our estimate is that uh, we are at roughly 20 million light curves for a single hemisphere. Uh, so currently TESS has completed the southern hemisphere and is, um, has done pretty much half of the northern hemisphere. And at this particular stage we are uh, still we are still processing the southern hemisphere. But this is because, of course, uh, we could test all our algorithms or our pipelines on the previous Kepler data, but the Kepler data, even though it's also space missions, they're still different in properties and quality from test data, and also in terms of time limits uh, that we are getting to from time So even though we could test on Kepler data, still our algorithms need quite some, you know, uh, modifications to be able to perform as best as possible on test data. So first we use the first sectors to understand really the test data and now we are pretty much processing the southern hemisphere where we have done maybe half of the southern hemisphere. But we are slowly catching up uh, you know, with the mission itself and by the time test completes uh, its entire full sky geosensitive hemisphere survey, I hope we will be able to catch up and release all the data that includes light curves, raw light curves extracted from images, uh, light curves that are corrected for systematic effects, and uh, light curves that are classified. Okay. You've mentioned now that you're going to be trying to get these light curves classified for a large amount of data. So what are you doing to test that your classifier is doing what you hope it does? So to that end, we, we, we have constructed a carefully selected training set. And again, in the first instance, it was the training set from Kepler data. Because we by now uh, understand those data and we have a fair amount of stars that are, that are accurately classified in Kepler. So we constructed a training set of 2,000 stars in the classes that we do want to, to distinguish with that data. And we use the training set to train our machine learning algorithms, and a part of the training set was used as a validation data set. Okay, so and of course, within that uh, limited stellar sample, we assigned all the class labels so we know what those stars are. And by comparing the output of our classifiers ran on this training set, 
uh, with uh, the actual labels, we are able to uh, say how accurate our predictions are. And it turns out that uh, our supervised learning methods are doing at the level of 95, uh, more or less, percent of the uh, precision in classifying uh, stars, while unsupervised me methods are somewhat uh, inferior, so they are doing at the level of 87 to 88 percent. However, unsupervised learning algorithms, you know, they are unsupervised for reasons, so we don't have to train them. And with those algorithms, we are able to detect new kind of variable, or new kind of classes of variable stars. And so the real power of unsupervised learning algorithms in our pipeline is uh, to complement yeah, supervised learning algorithms in that we can learn new things from the test data astrophysics-wise. Okay, so because they're unsupervised, you're now using them to pick out things that you haven't specifically told them. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, That's... for example, if we didn't have slurring stars in our training set for classifiers, we will never be able to pick them with supervised learning. They will end up, best case scenario, in sort of a trash bin stars that are, you know, they, they still get classified, of course, but with low probabilities inside to, to classes that we have predefined. Yeah. However, with unsupervised learning, so these algorithms, they don't really care about labels. So they will still cluster, they will group those stars according to how similar their light curves are. And we are actually able to detect lots of flaring stars in this particular example without knowing a priori that these are flaring stars. But then, of course, we can look at a couple of examples within that particular cluster by eye even and say, okay, that's uh, probably a cluster of flaring stars. Yeah? That's clever. So is there then, could you then add these new classes that you found from your unsupervised set to another supervised set? Absolutely. So and, uh, that's what we're actually doing, as I said. Our, initially, we uh, trained our supervised learning algorithms with Kepler data. Once again, so the properties of Kepler data are different from test data. And to be able to do really good job for tests, you have to at some point retrain your algorithms based on already test data or the training set that comes from test data itself with the class labels and signs. Uh, so that's why we do this Kepler pre-training. We do our initial classification, uh, uh, both supervised and non-supervised. And then within the astroseismic consortium of the test mission, it's a big consortium of thousands of people, we have a subdivision into a number of working groups. Each working group uh, it focuses on a particular type of variable stars. So we send our output, uh, classification output, to people with, uh, responsible within particular working groups to actually do a human-based validation of our classification. Yeah? Then they report back to us, and based on this report, on new classes discovered, with unsupervised learning algorithm, we retrain supervised algorithms based on that data. And that way we improve with each step that we take. That's something that's very clever, but also it's a very obvious logical series of steps that you can build yourself up with. That's, that's incredibly clever. So. We've talked now about machine learning for a bit. After we've grouped the data into these 
classifications. Can you tell us a bit more about what happens to it or how you use it? Yeah, so then, of course, I, I mentioned these working groups uh, within the Astrophysics Consortium, and uh, each working group contains to 1,500 of people yeah, who are all clustered together, if you want, yeah, based, on their, based on their interests, of course, and on their own vision of what needs to be done to improve uh, the understanding of, uh, you know, the inner structure and, and, and evolution. So then these data go uh, immediately become the outcome of our pipeline. Yeah? So all the data products in terms of slicers, corrected slicers, classifications, and everything. So that becomes immediately published yeah? both to the entire consortium uh, as well as to the world, basically. Because the, the, the uh, philosophy of the test mission itself is that the data are immediately public. So we also like the philosophy within the consortium, we just follow it. And then in principle, any researcher interested in a particular type of variable, uh, variable phenomenon, even, yeah, it could be even transient, some kind of transient phenomena, they can go get the data and do the astrophysical interpretation. And, and the, the setup of tests, again, the philosophy of tests is such that you do the uniform coverage of the sky. Yeah, you probe difference. Uh, regions, different parts of the Milky Way galaxy, not only that, so we also observe quite a bit of stars in the Large Magellanic Cloud, so we probe different intonicity regions. So then researchers get all those data yeah, and they start interpreting them in terms of astrophysics. So essentially, we are saving yeah, months and months of working time and lots of lots of manpower for those researchers who could immediately get our product and then start uh, extracting physics. Okay, and you've made the data public and people are using that. Are people then crediting you so it'd be easy to see, okay, these are the interesting things that have been done with your data. Yes, so uh, we have uh, uh, region policies within the Astrophysics Consortium and uh, everything is coordinated. Yeah? So uh, at, a, at a very high uh, level, in fact, and uh, our policies are such that, uh, for example, the pipeline, which is split in three parts, basically, yeah, the, as a, once again, light curve production, systematic corrections, and classification. So we write the methodological papers on all the three parts. And basically, our requirement is that people who use our data products so if you if you saw one of your papers about that and looked at the list of people who've cited it which are usually fairly well available that would be basically a list of the research that's gone on using that data absolutely that's, that's wonderful what i'll say now is just is there anything else that you would like to talk about this work well um yeah, so actually I, I uh, got introduced at some point, maybe uh, a year ago or so, uh, by, uh, by the Belgian PI of the plot, Tony Arcet, so my, uh, my functional uh, boss in what I'm doing at Tiger. And so I was introduced by her to, to uh, Rena and Mark here, who are uh, also involved uh, in Black Jam. So Black Jam is going to do uh, a nice uh, deep all-sky uh, survey with uh, three uh, ground-based telescopes. 
And I think the main interest uh, of, of Mark and Rene is in, is in uh, X-ray binaries uh, in, in this. And uh, so they got interested in what we are doing in terms of classification and everything. And so essentially that's why I got an invitation here to speak about the work we are doing for, for uh, dust plot and pepper missions in terms of data mining essentially and also the way we uh, interpret our data. Uh, so uh, it was really my pleasure to be here, and I really hope to continue collaboration with them this time into original black gem data because I, I, our software that we are developing, our pipeline is also publicly available. So it's not only the data products that we make available, but also the software itself. And uh, maybe they will find it uh, useful for black gem as well. Um, you so know, so like you. I really hope to establish uh, much. Uh, collaboration uh, with this particular institute here in Manchester. Thank you. Like you had your data that was used on Kepler and adapted to work on tests, they could adapt it in a way that works with BlackGem. That would be difficult. That's difficult. Do, yes, I think then we would rather use uh, some other ground-based service as our training set. Ah. Yeah, because then they will be much more similar in, in, in quality. Uh, and so. then space-based data. So space-based data is still uh, a lot different, of course, from, uh, from ground-based. Okay, so you find the ground-based data set. Yes, yeah, so the previous ground-based data sets. So, you know, because as, as far as I'm aware, so black gem is going to operate in, in uh, six different filters, I think. The one is a really like white, uh, broad band white filter, and then it will be much more narrow bands. Pretty much mimicking the SDSS, uh, Stone Digital Scholarly uh, filters. So, for example, you could, you could consider using the SDSS 1 to 4 data sets to maybe train our classifiers, modify them, you know, yeah. adapt, and then apply to them. Okay, so these filters that will be viewing the sky at different frequency bands. Yeah, right. And of course, yet, yet another thing, I, uh, uh, I briefly chatted already with, uh, with Mark, for example. Um, so they typically look at stars which are faint. Yeah? And then uh, when you think of the Platon mission, which is an exoplanet mission in principle, yeah? and the, the range of magnitudes of interest of Platon is brighter than magnitude 11 in V band. So when you think about Platon in terms of their stars, which are pretty much 80 to 20 magnitude, 22 magnitude in details. So you think like, okay, quantum mission is not for me. Yeah? But that might not be true, yeah? simply because in, in Plato, in addition to the core science, we also have complementary science. So complementary science of Plato is going to cover everything that is not covered in the core science, so everything that is not about stars cooler than spectral type F5, and everything that is not about exoplanets, essentially. Yeah? Uh, and then, of course, the specifications of Plato, the magnitude range that is specified, yeah, brighter than magnitude 311, that's, that's driven by the precision you need to detect and characterize the terrestrial planets. Yeah? And that's typically uh, PPM level, 40 to 50 parts per million level. But if you're fine with the Minimize or several minimize tens of minimize precision, then you can push Plato in its complementary science much deeper 
yeah, to feign their magnitude. Yeah? And I, I really wanna, wanna investigate whether this would be uh, an opportunity yeah, for local people here to use complementary science of Plato for their own needs, because Plato is more yeah, than its uh, core science. And in these days, we can perfectly simulate that, yeah, because in at higher level, we also develop the Plato end-to-end simulator. So in fact, you can simulate the entire noise budget of the Plato mission of all the cameras of Plato. Uh, you can include uh, realistic stellar fields, and you can then do the extraction of the light curve the way it will be done in the Plato mission. So essentially, already now, you can try to simulate whether the objects of your particular interest uh, are feasible to do with Plato mission. Okay, that's good. So you can see, you can have a good idea of what you're looking for will be in the mission before yeah. the mission starts. Yes. That's, that's good. Okay, then. Thank you very much. That was incredibly interesting talking about all those different missions you're working with. Yeah, you're welcome. And good luck working me. with Manchester. Uh, good luck working with Manchester. Yeah, I hope, hope you'll enjoy it. Thank Bye. you. Thanks for that, Mike. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Okay, then. So... Shall I start? Yes. Yes, right. Over the course of the last few months, I've been getting involved in a project called Cubic, which I want to talk about because over the course of this month, they've been starting to put out preprints for a set of papers that they've got sort of lined up. So they haven't finished this yet, but a lot of them are starting to come out as preprints. I thought it's a good time to start sort of chatting about what the project is and what's happened. So... There's this idea in cosmology inflation, it's fairly sort of well heard of, that near the beginning of the universe, rapid period of expansion as a possible solution to a lot of problems in cosmology. And the key thing that's missing is experimental evidence that it could actually happen. So a lot of experiments have been trying to find, or see if there is, rather, evidence of this inflation. Now, the main way to do that is what are called CMB B-modes. Now, this is to do with the polarisation of the cosmic microwave background. Now, polarisation can be split into two modes. They're referred to as E-modes and B-modes. And if inflation happened, one of the predictions that a lot of cosmologists make is that this would result in B-modes in this um, CMB. So if you could find them, that would be considered physical evidence of inflation. Obviously, if you keep going finer and finer and finer and still can't find them, then inflation has a lot of problems. Okay, how do we make this experiment? And Cubic is one of the experiments dedicated to looking for these B-modes. The idea's been going along for quite a while, and the thing that I'm most interested in now is that one of these preprints that's just been sort of prepared for release is about the cubic technical demonstrator they built a um the technical demonstrator this almost not not quite exactly what cubic would be when it's put on site but a demonstration of all the different scientific bits of the instrument and one of the prints that's coming out is called it's called cubic three laboratory characterization and as the name suggests it's showing the experiments done in the lab on this instrument 
The paper about calibration has a few interesting things. Firstly, they get a very well-made point source simulator, or, well, a device that works as a point source for this experiment. It's something that they can tune the frequency of. They put it, they basically put it somewhere in the lab, aim it at this technical demonstrator to check sort of what results they're getting. Are they getting this output signal that they would expect? And technical demonstrator goes through it and says, okay, their sort of conclusion for this is that it is working. They are getting what they'd expect from that source. And they can get from their detection back to the parameters of the source that they want. So that's sort of suggesting this instrument is working roughly as we expect. They also test um, a lot of the mechanical parts. So this can need a bit of an explanation of what cubic is and roughly how it works. I said before polarization was what we're trying to measure. And it does this in quite a sort of complicated but very sensible way. So one of the most accurate detectors for energy we have, it, or power we have in physics is what's called a bolometer. Now these things, they have a resistance that depends on temperature. So if a photon of light hits it, the temperature rises, that causes a change of resistance. You can get an electrical output for them. And if you think of um, superconducting materials, where over a very narrow range of temperature, the resistance drops from sort of normal levels to basically zero, you can get an incredibly accurate measure. But it can't by itself measure polarization. That's kind of a problem. So the way this experiment works is it combines that with a bit of interferometry. So there's a massive array of these horns that the signal goes into and produces a pattern of interference fringes. And those interference fringes are focused onto a big array of these bolometers, these energy detectors. Now, this makes the testing and design of the instrument complicated, but the energy output at each bolometer is some combination of the different polarizations. And because you have an array of hundreds of bolometers, you can do some mathematics to work back from that to the polarization of the signal because you can compare enormous amounts of different detectors. Now, that of course means, yeah, the calibration for this has been quite long, quite difficult with lots of different things needing to be tested. They've tested sort of what fringes you're getting from the, um, the horns that are doing your interferometry. They've tested um, what's called map making. Basically, map making is getting back from your data to what your source is. So they've done, they've done that for the synthesized source they had in the lab. They've got back to say, okay, this works, which is really useful. The testing we built works. It gets back from our results to our signal. So that's really cool. As for the other things that came out, there's also been a submission that discusses and explains the cryogenics, which is the bit that was largely designed in Manchester. That was the bit that our, our group were doing, finding cryogenics for this experiment. So there's now another paper prepared for that. Another one that's coming out as well is, okay, it's an interferometer, so you have an array of, say, a large number of 
these what are called feed horns. They're basically sort of, well, a horn shape, then a block, and then another horn shape directly underneath them. So light goes in at the top, comes out at the bottom. Fairly simple. You have a huge array of these, but there's also a paper discussing their manufacture, their testing, how they were made to precision. So it's quite it's quite an interesting time, and it's one of those things because of lockdown a lot of the practical side of this was slowed down a bit so what's ended up happening is that a lot of the work on writing these papers has came up quite recently they've managed to set up and prepare about i think about eight in total about eight different papers are sort of in various stages of completion over, over sort of the last few months Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about. That that's sort of the update of Cubic. So one of the things that I found uh, interesting about what you talked about was the fact that Cubic is using bolometers. And again, just to review, bolometers are basically temperature sensitive resistors uh, to detect photons. Um, with like an individual photon raising the temperature of the resistor. And uh, by being able to measure that, you can measure the signal from space. The alternative instrumentation that you could use to measure the signal from the cosmic microwave background radiation would be heterodyne receivers, which are basically little Y-shaped radio receivers that you would uh, put in the instrumentation at the uh, back of the telescope. Uh I have the impression that most work these days at these frequencies, which are in the millimeter part of the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, were moving towards working with the heterodyne receivers. I'm vaguely surprised to find out the cubics using bolometers. Yeah, heterodyne receivers, obviously, yeah, a lot of CMB experiments are going for this. I think the reason for using bolometers or trying to use them in this is just because they are so so sensitive well i have experience working with bolometers as well as heterodyne receivers and yes they can both be sensitive under different circumstances uh but yeah also i suppose it depends on whether or not you want to measure broadband radiation so it's uh do you want to measure all of the photons over a really really broad range of frequencies in which case a bolometer might be just fine. Or if you want to be able to measure emission at very, very specific frequencies, uh, in which case you would want to potentially use heterodyne receivers. So with telescopes that I've been involved with in the past um, and the present, uh, telescopes like the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope and the Herschel Space Observatory, which both observe in the submillimeter part of the electromagnetic spectrum, have used bolometers. Those are higher frequencies than what I think Cubic will be observing. Yeah, Cubic's go for 150 gigahertz and 220. So the telescope that I work with primarily now, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter slash Submillimeter Array in Chile, that observes a broad frequency range, which includes those frequencies. It doesn't observe the entire broad frequency range at once, but it does include the that specific frequency range. 
and that does use heterodyne receivers. So it is kind of interesting that uh, Cubic decided to uh, go with bolometers, I think. You're, you're right. A lot of um, experiments are now going for heterodyne receivers rather than trying to work with bolometers. It is one of those cases where it's just the very specific way the experiment is designed makes bolometers a useful choice. Because you've got so many detectors, rather than just doing a couple of um, um, antenna pairs correlate them, you image the whole interference pattern, and each different bolometer has different um, energies depending on where where it is in this array. You now take that image and work back. The thing with having the interferometer array is that you can do a lot of interesting things with... Um, correlation between different horns, different parts of the interferometer that allow you to do some really nice um, control of your systematic errors, which is one of the things that's gone over in one of these papers. And it's really quite clever because if you've got a grid of horns, a grid of bits of your telescope, and if you know a bit of interferometry, you know you find this thing called the baseline as between these two horns. One of the cool things you can do is that some of these baselines are going to be equivalent. So the line between two of the horns, you've got a 400 horn array, the line between these and some other two somewhere else in the array will have the same baseline. And because those baselines are equivalent, you can do some really neat um, testing of systematic errors or errors in your um, equipment by comparing these equivalent baselines. And that's one of the nice advantages of that. You've now got that which an interferometer has, but you also have the same output advantages of your bolometer. Yeah, your other option would have been do this with interferometer and heterodyne receivers. But yeah, that's that's sort of why you go interferometry, and it's it's quite an interesting thing. But anyway, that's what I've been doing for well, what I've been looking at for the past few months. Um, George, what have you got this week? So uh, I've actually stayed busy ever since the lockdown started. Uh, I've had a lot of different research projects to keep me going, as well as work with supporting astronomers using the Atacama Large Millimeter slash Submillimeter Array, or ALMA in Chile. Uh, I'm employed to help UK astronomers work with that telescope and while during the lockdown, I have had one-on-one -on -one discussions with individual people whom I'm working with. Uh, I had the idea back in August to organize a virtual workshop uh, for people who uh, want to learn how to work with Alma. The idea behind this was that uh, starting in the next month or two, uh, new postgraduate students are going to be starting their studies, uh, not only at the University of Manchester, but at other universities across the UK. And a lot of them are going to be starting research with ALMA data. And it would seem to make sense to put together a workshop where everybody uh, at all of these different institutions uh, can get some basic training in working with their ALMA data uh, rather than uh, the individual students 
really having to figure it out by themselves from scratch or asking around uh, other people at their institutions, which may also be a bit difficult uh, given that uh, not all universities are going to uh, be opening up completely in the fall. And even if they do, not everybody's going to be working on campus uh, for various reasons. So the virtual workshop seemed like uh, an interesting thing to set up. And normally I wouldn't talk about the workshops, which I organize on the Jodcast, although I think I've talked about uh, organizing stuff in the past. But what makes this a bit different is that this is going to be my first attempt at organizing a virtual Alma workshop rather than a normal in-person hands-on workshop. And part of what's involved with the workshop will include data processing. Now, for the virtual workshop, we've decided to cut some of the things which we would include in the past, not because it would be too difficult in the virtual workshop, but because uh, some of the data processing that we did in the past no longer seems like it's necessary for individual astronomers to do, and therefore it doesn't seem like it's important to teach. But uh, we're still going to have some hands-on instruction on making images. And this is going to be one of the more tricky parts of the workshop because we're going to be asking people to install the software. It's a package called CASA uh, on a computer somewhere that they can access and to run the CASA software themselves. And they're also going to need to be able to download the data that they're going to be working with. Even if people were doing this on their own laptops, working with them in person makes it a bit easier to deal with a lot of these issues. Uh, just because if people run into technical issues, either other people or myself who are running the workshop would be familiar with some of these technical issues and would be able to help, well, basically go physically onto the individual person's computer and circumvent the issues or be able to tell them right away. That's not going to be as straightforward in a virtual workshop just because we're going to have to rely on telling other people what to do to be able to produce their images. Well, what to do in terms of installing the software, how to troubleshoot any issues with installing the software, and also we're going to have to uh, sort of interact virtually in terms of trying to debug code, which may involve a lot of back and forth screen sharing, uh, where it's, uh, I could imagine a scenario, for example, where a student says, I'm running into problems. And then I tell a student, can you like screen share so I can see like your code and the student does the screen share. And then I look at the code and say, okay, uh, you're missing this. And then I like screen share what the code should actually look like. And then maybe ask the student to like screen share back if the code doesn't work. And sort of a strange back and forth in that sense. Also, one of the other tricky things as well is that the Alma data sets are very large sometimes. I am going to try to identify a relatively small data set that uh, the postgraduate students can work with so that they don't spend a lot of time downloading the data and they don't 
over if they're working on their own personal laptop, they don't completely overwhelm the disk space on their own laptop. But that could also still be a tricky problem as well. Some students will not have disk space necessarily at all. Uh, some students will be probably remote logged into their university's computers and uh, university computers could have like oodles of disk space and that may be fine. I could do something a little bit more uh, demanding and ask students to download a data set, which is 250 gigabytes in raw form, and then ask them to image that. And that will probably fill up a terabyte or a couple terabytes. And a student working remotely on the desktop computer wouldn't have any problems with that, just as long as they're Connection to a desktop computer is fine, which is the only challenge. A student working on a laptop computer, you ask them to use up a terabyte of disk space, and uh, you'll probably kill their computer. Yeah, there's not going to be many who have a laptop with that much or more. But it's quite likely that a lot of the students who are going to be participating in this workshop are going to only have laptops. And while there are some very good laptops around these days. Uh, the laptops themselves don't necessarily come with that much disk space. And there's been the trend in recent years for laptop computers to go with solid state disks, which are either smaller than a terabyte, and uh, therefore they aren't that expensive, but they also don't have that much disk space. Uh, I do suspect that there may be some students who use an external disk uh, just for the exercise. But then that becomes its own challenge just because then uh, data processing on an external disk can be a little bit slower than data processing on an internal disk just because you have to do read and write through a USB connection. Yeah, and when you've got that much data there to read and write, I'm guessing that's not great. CASA can spend a lot of time reading and writing data when it's processing data. And uh, I've actually had debates with our IT support people uh, at the University of Manchester whether or not CASA is being slowed down by things like processor speed or memory or if it's really being slowed down by I.O. issues where it's just it's running slowly just because it's limited by how quickly it can read data off the disk and write data back to the disk. I've had debates. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I haven't definitively shown it. On the other hand, I've seen hints of that. But these are all going to be interesting limitations. And like I said, normally when I organize a workshop, it wouldn't be something that would bother talking about in the Jodcast. But this is going to be my first virtual workshop that I'm organizing and it's going to be a bit different. Have you found any advantages with it, though? Well, I'm hoping that one of the advantages is that it doesn't really cost a whole lot to much of anyone. Normally, with an in-person workshop, so if we were to have an in-person workshop at the University of Manchester and invite postgraduate students from across the country to come to the workshop, we might not spend that much money at the University of Manchester. We may want to pay for catering just for coffee, for example, or depending on circumstances, we may want to order lunches as well. But the individual students 
to come to the conference would at the very least have to pay for transportation. And chances are they're living someplace where commuting every day is not going to be terribly convenient, in which case they're going to have to pay for some sort of transportation to Manchester. And then they're going to have to book a hotel for a few nights and they're going to have to pay for meals while they're at the hotels. And when they go back to their home institution, they can get reimbursed for this, but it still costs the home institution money to send the student here and have the student go back. Doing a virtual workshop, the student can just sit at home. They don't have to travel anywhere. They don't have to pay for a train. They don't have to pay for a hotel room. They can just eat their own food. It's no cost to the universities. It's no cost to the students. It's no cost to us if the students just telecommute in to the meeting. Okay, good. Well, that, that's an interesting little bit. So next up, what we have is the night sky. Um, here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky in the north. The night sky for September 2020. High overhead as darkness falls lies that beautiful region of the sky containing the constellations of Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. Their bright stars, Deneb and Cygnus, Vega and Lyra, and Altair and Aquila form what's called the Summer Triangle. On the Night Sky page this month, just search for Night Sky Jodrell and drop down to the Centre for Astrophysics. I put a large scale image of this region I took on August the 18th, and there's also an annotated version showing you where the constellations lie. Down to the left of Cygnus lies the square of Pegasus, four bright stars forming the square. The top left of those stars, called Alpharat, is actually Alpha Andromeda, and it's a starting point of a way to find the Andromeda galaxy. Move up one bright star, slightly to the right to the next bright star, then sharp right to a fainter star, and just beyond the same distance away, you might see with binoculars a small fuzzy glow. And that's the Andromeda galaxy. Above Andromeda lies Cassiopeia, an open W shape, and the lower right part forms a V, and that V actually also points down to the Andromeda galaxy. So some nice things to look at this month. And now the planets. Jupiter is now visible towards the south as darkness falls and crosses the meridian so highest in elevation at 9.30pm BST at the start of the month and by about 7.45pm by month's end. Its magnitude dims slightly from minus 2.6 to minus 2.4 during the month whilst its angular size falls from 44.3 40.7 arc seconds. Sadly, even when due south, it will only have an elevation of about 16 degrees above the horizon, so the atmosphere will limit our views. On September the 12th, Jupiter ends its retrograde westward motion and moves eastward again across the sky. A highlight on the night sky page gives the times when the great red spot faces the Earth. Saturn follows Jupiter into the sky, some 8 degrees to behind. It crosses the moon at about 10.18 BST at the start of the month, and about 8.19 by its end. 
its magnitude drops slightly again from plus 0.3 to plus 0.5, whilst the angular size decreases from 18 to 17.2 arc seconds. The ring spans some 40 arc seconds across, and at about 23 degrees to the line of sight, sharp well. Saturn lies in Sagittarius, near the border of Capricornus. It halts its retrograde motion on the 29th of the month, and as the year progresses, becomes closer and closer to Jupiter, until on the 21st of December, they are just 0.1 degrees apart. Sadly again, its low elevation of about 16 degrees when crossing the meridian will somewhat limit our views of this most beautiful planet. Mercury is barely visible this month, lying very low above the horizon to the east of the sun at sunset. Though initially shining at magnitude minus 0.6, reducing to magnitude zero by month's end, binoculars or a telescope will be needed to spot it, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Now this is the first of two great months to observe Mars, which has its closest approach to Earth on October the 6th. Lying in Pisces, Mars can be seen towards the southeast at the start of the month, rising at 9.45pm as September begins, and two hours earlier by its end. It crosses the meridian at about 4am BST on the first of the month, and at 2am by month's end. Its magnitude will rise from minus 1.8 to minus 2.5 during the month, as its angular size increases from 18.9 to 22.4 arc seconds. It reaches an elevation of 45 degrees when due south, so amateur telescopes will be able to see features such as Certis Major on its surface when the seeing conditions are good. This is the best time to observe Mars for many years. Venus was at greatest elongation east on August the 12th, but still dominates the pre-dawn sky rising about three and a half hours before sunrise. It shines at magnitude minus 4.3 as September begins, dropping to minus 4.1 by month's end, whilst its angular size decreases from 19.5 to 15.6 arc seconds. But at the same time, its phase, the illuminated percentage of the disk, increases from 60% to 72%, which is why the fall in magnitude is not that great. It still reaches an elevation of about 35 degrees at sunrise. In Germany, as September begins, it passes into Cancer on the 4th and Leo on the 23rd of the month. And finally, some highlights of the month. Well, as I've said, September's a great month to view Jupiter. It will be visible throughout virtually all the hours of darkness. It lies in the southernmost part of the ecliptic in Sagittarius, and so, as I said, will only reach an elevation of about 16 degrees when crossing the meridian. An interesting observation is that the great red spot appears to be diminishing in size. At the beginning of the last century, it spanned some 40,000 kilometers across, but now appears to be only about 16,500 kilometers across, less than half the size. The shrinking rate appears to be accelerating. And observations indicate that it's now reducing in size by around 580 miles per year. I wonder if it will eventually disappear. September is a good month to find Neptune. It's at opposition, and so we can see it throughout the night. 
that lies in Aquarius below one of the circlets of Pisces and shines at magnitude plus 7.8, having a 2.4 arc second disc. So binoculars or a telescope will be needed to spot it under a dark sky. I hope the charts on the night sky page will help you find it. It's not so difficult as it lies close to a nice grouping of stars. Of course, a well-aligned computerized telescope will take you right there. But unless the seeing is exceptional, I expect that the dark bluish disc will not be that obvious. September is also a good month to observe the double cluster and the demon star Algol in Perseus. And again, I've given a star chart on the night sky page to find them. Algol is an eclipsing binary system. Normally the pair has a steady magnitude of 2.2, but every 2.86 days this briefly drops to magnitude 3.4. Again in September, I've shown on a star chart how to find a nice globular cluster M13 in Hercules and what's called a double-double star in Lyra. It's Epsilon Lyrae, but actually two stars, Epsilon 1 Lyrae, Epsilon 2 Lyrae. With binoculars, you can see the fact there's a pair. But when observed with a telescope, when the scene is good, each of these stars is revealed to be a double star, hence the name. Before dawn on September the 14th, Venus will lie below a thin crescent moon. And on September the 25th, in the late evening, Saturn and Jupiter will lie above a waxing moon just after first quarter. September the 27th is a good night to observe two great lunar craters, Tycho and Copernicus, and that's because the terminator is quite close. Tycho is towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Southern Lunar Highlands. It is a relatively young crater, about 108 million years old. It has a diameter of 85 kilometers and is nearly 5 kilometers deep. At full moon, the rays of material that were ejected when it was formed can be seen arcing across the lunar surface. Copernicus, on the other hand, is around 800 million years old and lies in the eastern Oceanus Procellarum, beyond the end of the Pennine mountain chain. It is 93 kilometers wide and nearly 4 kilometers deep and is a classic Terrace crater. Both can be seen with binoculars but make lovely sights in a small telescope. Well, I'm sorry the audio is perhaps not as good as it used to be. We're having to do some odd things during lockdown, but I hope you've learned something about the sky that you can observe this month. And thanks for that, Ian. So for our listeners in the Southern Hemisphere, here's Haritina Mogoshanu and Samuel Lesk. Kia ora from New Zealand. I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. And I'm Sam Leski. And together we are going to talk about September and what we do with it, what the sun is up to, when is the moon in the sky, what's in the Milky Way, Orion and Scorpius as they're on opposite parts of the galaxy, and what are the brightest stars visible at night, after sunset obviously, and finally find out our favorite binocular and telescope objects. September comes from the Latin word septum, which means seven. In the old Roman calendar, it was the seventh month, rather than the ninth as it is today, counting from March, which was considered the beginning of the year. Traditionally, September is linked to harvest in the Northern Hemisphere, 
as it was the month of harvest. From apples to grapes, most autumn fruits were getting ripe then. The harvest of the grapes was always a good reason to celebrate. The overarching deities this month were in charge of, obviously, agriculture and abundance. Since the 10th century BC, that's 12,000 years ago, Babylonian goddess Shala and her ear of grain, now the star Spica, which actually the name Spica, that's exactly what it means, ear of grain, they were associated with fertility and she was ruling the sky in September. The early Greek observed Demeter, their goddess of wheat and agriculture, and the Romans Ceres, or Ceres, who was also the counterpart of Demeter. So it was the same theme repeating, which was related to harvest. Of course, here in the Southern Hemisphere, none of these happen, and in September, all the flowers are in bloom. It's interesting to note that the corresponding stars for these constellations are, at this time of the year, very close to the sun. Thus, we cannot actually see them, and they are best visible six months later when they reach the highest position in the sky. If we look at the zodiacal constellations where the sun lays in September, the sun transits through Leo until the 17th when it moves into Virgo, where it stays until October the 31st. The zodiacal constellations are those stars visible behind the plane of our solar system, about 8 degrees each side of the ecliptic. They form a band in the sky called the zodiacal band. So the ecliptic is an imaginary line that marks the path of the sun in the sky as it moves against the background stars from the zodiacal band. The sun in Virgo then means only one thing, opposite the sun, that's 180 degrees on the other side of the zodiacal band, is Pisces. Pisces will rise just after sunset and will be visible all night long. September is also when we celebrate the equinox, when the day is equal to the night. Equinox is the moment in time when the projection of Earth's equator onto the celestial sphere, that's also known as the celestial equator, passes through the geometric center of the sun's disk. As seen from Earth at equinox, the center of the visible sun will be directly above the equator. When you look on a map, you will see the celestial equator, which is an imaginary line, obviously, that will cross over the ecliptic, another imaginary line. The September equinox and the March equinox are the only two days in the year when the sun actually rises from exactly the east and sets in the west. Before Stonehenge Aotearoa was built here in New Zealand, the team wanted to make sure that it was perfectly aligned to our particular geographical coordinates here, and they measured the rising points of the sun at solstices and equinoxes and of the stars as seen from a point that is now the centre of the hinge. These points are now marked by pillars called the hillstones. Māori of New Zealand explained that by saying that the sun, Tamanuita Ra, had two wives, Hina Raumati in summer and Hina Takurua in winter. At solstices, the rising point of the sun seems to move very slowly on the horizon, whereas equinoxes, it is very fast. After September equinox, seen from the Earth, the sun will now lean towards the southern part of the sky. For us, it will appear higher and higher in the sky. Seen from space, the south pole will lean towards the sun, receiving more sunlight, which will warm the atmosphere up. The first point of Libra. These fancy words are naming the point on the celestial map where, from Earth, it looks like the sun shifts celestial hemispheres. 
As the sun is changing its position in relation to the background stars every day, the two main lines you will find on the celestial map, the celestial equator and the ecliptic, cross over at the equinoxes. 2,000 years ago, the September crossover occurred in the constellation Libra. Due to Earth's wobble, which has a spinning top movement, the crossover happens now in Virgo. Astronomers, however, kept the first point in Libra as the name for the September equinox. In 400 years from now, it'll be in Leo. By the way, this is the same reason why the time when the Sun is in any particular zodiacal constellation shifted back with almost a month too. So the equinox is only a moment in time as Earth continuously moves as it orbits around the Sun. So, what's the Sun up to? The Sun rises at 6.42am on the first day of September and earlier and earlier every day so that on the 26th of September it will rise at 6am. However, the clock will shift by one hour on the night on the 26th of September, so on the 27th of September the Sun will rise at 6.58am, almost 7 o'clock. The sun sets at 5.53pm, almost 6 o'clock, on 1st of September, and later at 7.22pm on the 30th of September. That's quite a lot of change. According to timeanddate.com, September equinox in Wellington is on Wednesday the 23rd of September at 1.30am. As the month goes, the days will be longer than the nights until we reach the summer solstice. Since the equinoxes only occur twice a year, then they are very special astronomical events. In New Zealand, spring begins off the 1st of September. Since 1870s, New Zealand used the meteorological dates to mark the beginning of spring. Thus, spring begins here on the 1st of September, but people who came here from the Northern Hemisphere usually think that spring begins at the autumnal equinox, which, by the way, is the 3rd of September. But just for the sake of argument, according to Weatherwatch, Managing Director Philip Duncan, there are actually four ways to start a season. The first way is looking at the astronomical dates, which would place the date on September the 22nd or 23rd, based on the equinox. By metrological dates, is the second method, which is a three-month division of the year into seasons. Thus, spring starts on September 1, which is the one I know of. Anyway, the third way of figuring out the seasons is observing the solar winter, which is the three darkest months, with the June 21st, 22nd winter solstice in the middle, which shifts the beginning of spring to August the 8th. And the last method, looking at what nature does, which in New Zealand is hard to pin down. But, you know, today is the 5th of September and it's most certainly spring outside. So whoever decided that it was the 21st is not right for New Zealand. Speaking of the Milky Way and the ecliptic and the sun and everything else that is in that part of the sky, let's talk about the zodiacal light. In September, the asterism of Scorpius is at this time of the year the fishhook of Maui that drags the Milky Way down from the sky and we get to admire the amazing galactic center and the Milky Way Kiwi inside it, which is fantastic and enjoy it while it lasts. But if you look towards the western horizon you can see something called the zodiacal light. It is a cone-shaped light that stretches from low on the horizon along the ecliptic. Yes, it is the ecliptic again. The zodiacal light is the light we see reflected from dust and ice particles in the plane of our own solar system. How cool is that? So in the sky, we can see both the galaxy that we inhabit and the solar system. 
two objects at two completely different scales, and in different parts of the sky as well. But the part of the sky where we observe the zodiacal light is where the ecliptic would be. Once you've learned where that is, you'll see it is very useful, especially at figuring out where the planets are in the sky, as they orbit around the sun in the same path, and you guessed it, on the ecliptic. But because some of their orbit planes are ever so slightly on an angle compared to Earth's, they don't match perfectly. So that's why the zodiacal band is a band of stars about 8 degrees either side of the ecliptic, and that's where the planets are visible. We're going to talk a little bit about Scorpius and Taurus and the Saturn cross, where exactly they are in the sky. So we've established that Scorpius is up at Zenith on top of the sky, just lift up your head. And after sunset in September, you will see the fish hook dragging the Milky Way from Zenith towards the western horizon. Scorpius, the Mata wa Maui, has a magnificent red supergiant star, Antares, which here, Maori here, call it Rehua, and that's the summer wife of the sun, which means that in summertime the sun is very close to that star. In a telescope, it looks like a beautiful ruby, and it is impossible to miss on a clear, dark night. It looks quite reddish, and even on a light-polluted sky, it is impossible to miss, because it's a very, very bright star. It's reddish, and sometimes planet Mars comes very close to it, which gave it the name Antares, which means the rival of Mars. Antares, it is, you guessed, one of those stars inside the zodiacal band. When Mars gets very close to Antares, the two of them rival in redness and brightness. I believe the Mars wins, but that's just because it's made of iron. Um, we took a lot of images of Antares recently with our new fantastic project, the SLU telescopes, and Antares is a really, really big star. You can see it is a star, a big one. Catspaw Nebula. This one is a good astrophotography target. The butterfly cluster, or M6, which you can also see in a telescope, is an open cluster of stars. M7, also known as Ptolemy's cluster, is also an open cluster. M4, the globular cluster near Antares. NGC 6231, or Mallow 153, is a beautiful open cluster as well, which was discovered as far back as 1654 by Giovanni Odima, who listed it as luminous in his catalogue, and it is very luminous. We're really lucky here in the Southern Hemisphere because we get to see Scorpius reaching the zenith, and of course when it does, it's dragging up all of those amazing deep sky objects so that we can see them, and we can see them here in the best possible place, which is straight up, so you're looking through the least amount of atmosphere, so to see these objects is just fantastic. South of Scorpius, you can find the constellation of Centaurus, a creature that is half human and half horse in Greek mythology. Home of Alpha, Beta and Omega Centauri. This time of year it is very high in the sky, so in a good position to observe. There are some circumpolar objects to New Zealand. In September in the evenings, you'll find the Southern Cross in the southwestern part of the sky, so just after sunset it's a almost at the 3 o'clock position, heading down, followed by the pointers. Canopus, another circumpolar object, would be at the same time grazing the southern horizon and would be really hard to see from Wellington. Akinar and the two Magellanic clouds would be in the southeastern part of the sky. Now, on the 
other side of the Milky Way, it's Edge or Orion and Taurus, which are opposite Scorpius on the celestial sphere. Orion will appear due east as Scorpius sets in the west. At this time of the year, we see it in the early morning sky. But even earlier on the eastern horizon than Orion, you'll be able to see the Pleiades and the Hyades, which now rise about 1 a.m. So not too much to wait. Some other bright stars? Just after sunset, Virgo will be on the western horizon, very close to the sun. It will be visible only in the first part of the month, with the beautiful star speaker sinking beyond the horizon by the middle of the month. In Libra, Zubinal Ganubi and Zubinal Shamali are the former claws of Scorpius, now the scales of justice. Some sources say that they have been chopped from Scorpius and recreated into the scale of justice at the time when the first point of Libra was in Libra, which is why Libra was created by our ancestors. Not because they noticed that people born that time of the year were indecisive, always tried to get revenge, or were weighing their arguments carefully, but to mark one of the two equinoxes. Sagittarius has many beautiful bright stars as well, and I love the particular teapot shape that it has, which now can be seen as the constellation is also at Zenit. Nunki is our favorite star this month, also because we took a picture of it recently. And back to the Northern Hemisphere, oldies but goldies, we see just a little bit of those in the north. Brightest star, probably Altair in Aquila, the constellation of Ego, a triangle-shaped constellation in the northeastern skies. Lower on the northern horizon, but harder to see than Aquila because of the hills and sometimes of the clouds and and the um, atmosphere. And mirroring somewhat Canopus, the second brightest star in the sky, which is also lower, but on the southern horizon is Vega. Vega is in the northern horizon. And Vega was nicknamed Antopus by our friend Ian Cooper. And he did that as a play of words with Antares, which means the arrival of Mars. Ian says that Vega rises low in the north when Canopus is low in the south. And they're like two rivals eyeing each other up. Another beautiful star is Elbereo and Cygnus. It is a spectacular blue and red giant double. So it's not just one star. Only about 10 degrees above the horizon, the stars of Lyra, where Vega lays, also hosts a fabulous Messier object, which is really easy to see in a telescope, and that is M57, the Ring Nebula, the remnants of a star. In astronomical terms, it is a planetary nebula. Nearby, another one of its kind, remnants of another star that died in Volpecula, M27 or the Dumbbell Nebula is another fantastic target. In fact, that's the brightest um, planetary nebula in the night sky. As they're not so good to photograph from Wellington, we're just using the telescopes from SLU, which have a prime view to these amazing objects with their telescopes in the Canary Islands. Probably the best star and one of my favourite objects in the night sky is Albareo, which we also view with SLU, just because it's too low for us to photograph here. Uh, The dark patches in the sky, there are many of them here in the Southern Hemisphere because we have such a dark sky. The Milky Way is really well visible at this time of the year, the center of the Milky Way. The Milky Way is visible all, all year and you need a very dark sky to see it. The lines of dust that go through the center of the Milky Way are striking and they are the neck of a giant emu bird. 
That's according to our neighbors, the Aboriginal people from Australia. The other famous dark patches are the coal sack near the Southern Cross. The coal sack is known as the flounder here, which is the Maori name for it. And indeed, if you find a truly dark sky, you will see the resemblance. The coal sack is an appropriate name as well, as diamonds are sometimes found in the coal. Inside the dark patch, made of interstellar dust matter, is the jewel box or Kappa Crucis cluster NGC 4755, which is absolutely beautiful. And finally, let's have a quick look at the moon and the planets in September. The moon, the full moon is on September the 2nd, last quarter on September the 10th, the new moon on September the 17th, and the first quarter on September the 24th. Jupiter and Saturn are of course in the sky and they've been dominating our views for so long now. It's absolutely fantastic seeing those gas giants up there. And you know, when someone sees Saturn for the first time ever and they let out a wow, that's awesome or other expletives, it is always a fascinating thing to listen to and experience. Mars of course is catching up and will soon be at opposition and Venus is in the morning sky at the beginning of the month, is rising around 4.30am. So that's it from us here in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, Clear skies, and all the best everyone. Clear skies. Thanks for that, Haratina and Sam. Now, for the feedback, just one general thank you. There's been a lot of people messaging their thanks that the Jodcast is back on and saying how great it is that we're back up and running. Really, thank you so much for all that feedback. It's so lovely to hear sort of positive words and people being happy at the fact that the podcast is back on. It's been difficult getting it through over lockdown, but thank you for all your support. You've been wonderful keeping us going with this. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so firstly via our website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. And even though that's a university address, we will be checking the post. The editors were Tian Bezwidenhoi, Lizzie Lee, Haritina Mugoshanu, Hongming Tang, and Joseph Wenke. The producer was Michael Wright. Until next time, shut up.